I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. This is episode 13. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, as always, is the big, blonde, and brawny Jeff Goad. Hello, everybody. Lucky episode number 13. What are we reading this week, Jeff? Uh, this week is Gardner F. Fox's Kothar, Barbarian Swordsman from 1969. Cool, cool, cool. Now, I note that we are actually both reading the 1973 printing here from Leisure Books. You want us to... Uh, should you want to go for the back back cover copy here? Sure. Um, also, just to mention, Leisure Books is the publisher of such delightful uh, titles such as The Sexecutioner, Tong in Cheek, The Sexecutioner, Silver Finger. Um, and this is all part of the Cherry Delight series. Yes, yeah, the yeah. Cherry Delight series. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, you've, you've got a whole little selection of different titles you can order here from Leisure Books. Right. And there's also a nice fold-out cigarette ad in the center of the book. True. Menthol. No, this is not even menthol. This is straight up unadulterated. T- oh, no, the true menthol is on the back page there. Nice. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so you're asking me to read the, the, the copy on the back. Yeah. Kothar the Mighty. From the enchanted, terrifying world before or beyond recorded time, Kothar emerges. From out of the deepest, most violent recess of man's collective memory strides Kothar, the gigantic barbarian, the enchanted sword Frostfire glittering in his mighty hand. Lusty, hot-blooded, masterful, unafraid of things real and unreal, Kothar dominates the misty, bloody world before recorded time. Although Kothar's world exists in another age, perhaps another dimension, it springs vividly to life. Sorcerers, dragons, witches, evil potions, unspeakable monsters all suddenly become real, and Kothar, an epic hero for any age, overshadows everything. I like how there's at least two typos on that back cover there. Yeah, and one of them I, I, I said out loud, and one of them I did not, because it did say uh, most violent recessed yeah. of mankind's collective memory, and it's obviously supposed to be recesses. Yeah. And I skipped over where it says, and epic hero for any age, instead right. of an epic hero. So this Leisure Books, class act. Class act. Purely cheap and cheerful, as they like to say. <laughs> uh, but the Leisure Books copy we're reading does have this uh, Jeff Jones cover. We've recently been on a, a string of Jeff Jones covers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hoy, tell us about this cover and what you think of it. Uh, it's, it's a lovely, moody cover. It's mostly dark green and, and black. With, um, and I'm not actually sure it's Kothar. I mean, there's a barbarian here with a crossbow, which I don't think he ever wields during the stories. And I don't think he ever had this, a crossbow. And he's just got the sword just kind of hanging down there. So this is the second printing cover. The first printing cover is clearly him because it's a big blonde barbarian. I will have to go back and look, but I'm 99% sure that I saw this cover on another book. So it was not unusual <sighs> for them to repurpose artwork uh, during the sort of the cheap paperback era because I've noticed a couple of the Edgar Rice Burroughs books from Ace also had repurposed covers. Uh, but it's a nice cover. So... And uh, Jeff Jones is, uh, we've talked about him briefly before in some of the other episodes, and maybe I'll put more information about um, her in the show notes because he uh, did transition to a a woman later in his life uh, and was known as Jeffrey Catherine Jones at that point. Um, So, uh, but anyway, lovely piece of artwork, and uh, let's carry on. Uh, Coming up next is our Hygaxian word of the day. Hit us. So today our word is... 
Hackathon. Hackathon. And Hackathon is a word that is used quite often in this story. And Hackathon is an upholstered garment for the upper body worn under chainmail or such a garment covered with chainmail. And we encounter this word quite a bit in the text here. Uh, we even encounter it in the very first paragraph of the very first page of the story. Uh, oh, except not in the introduction, but in the, in the, the first paragraph story. of The Sword of the Sorcerer. The blood lay red upon the dented male shirt and spotted his yellow hair in ghastly fashion. It ran wetly, redly, from the worn sleeve of his leather hackaton to drop upon his big hand and ooze across the pommel of his shattered sword. So hackaton, unlike a lot of the other Hygaxian words, is less of like an evocative adjective or verb. This is, you know, it's a noun, but it's something that comes up quite a bit in the story. It's a word that I feel like you can use in your gaming, and it's one that I, I don't believe I've ever seen uh, written out in any kind of a, an armor equipment list before. Um, no, I, we generally see, say, cloth armor. It will be listed as, as, or sometimes I'll just say, you know, padded jacket to be worn under a chain mail or something like that. Sure. Um, and actually, I noted, uh, although I didn't make any um, a specific list, that actually for a cheap pulp novel, there was a quite a lot of uh, sort of SAT words, if you will. Sure. Um, so I think Gardner Fox was having his jollies in that sense, you know, throwing in his um, his knowledge there. Uh, we'll get more into that because uh, Gardner Fox is quite a fascinating character in his <laughs> own right. Um, but anyway, so there you go, Hackathon. In this case, he's it's he's I think using it in sort of a more generic term, not just as the cloth armor, but just as as a word for armor in general. I think mm -hmm. in the text to sort of give it more flavor would be my take on it. Mm. Yeah. So, what did you think of this one, Jeff? Oh, I thought it was great. Um, before we uh, kind of dive into too much of that did, um, and, and go into the library, did you want to talk a little bit about Gardner Fox or kind of sure. let us know a little bit about who he is and what his deal is? Sure, sure. Gardner Fox is in many ways, this is sort of uh, what you almost would call a sidebar to his career. Um, he's actually most famous as a, um, the second most prolific DC Comics writer. So he uh, created the Golden Age Flash. He created uh, the Sandman, uh, the Justice Society of America, and he stayed. Uh, he started writing for DC Comics or the predecessor of DC Comics as early as 1935, and he stuck with it all the way into the 70s. He also uh, wrote the uh, seminal story, The Flash of Two Worlds. Created the Justice League. Um, so I think that. Um, if you're into DC Comics at all, there's a good chance that you've either read one of his stories or read one of his creations, at the very least. Mm -hmm. um, and all the while he was doing that, and at one point he'd been a practicing lawyer, um, and I think that in the 30s he transitioned to becoming a writer. Um, he was also writing a lot of pulp fiction. Um, and then uh, this is all the stuff that was under his byline. He also, uh, as I understand in your research, Jeff, you found out that he had a lot of pen names and also wrote he a lot did. of other stuff. Uh, one of his pen names is Rod Gray. And Rod Gray wrote a series called The Woman from Lust, L.U.S.T. Uh, <laughs> much like the man from Uncle, I guess. Right. Uh, and there were four novels in that series. There's Blow My Mind, Laid in the Future, The Copulation Explosion, and The Poisoned Pussy. <laughs> So I think we'll put those down in our further reading section of the show. <laughs> <laughs> we will not be covering those titles in our in our podcast. Right, we don't have an Appendix E for Erotica podcast <laughs> yet. But, you know, if we get enough requests. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, so shall we go to the library? Absolutely. Okay. So starting off, I would like to chat about the introduction, which I got a big kick out of. So the introduction 
the it says that the introduction is written by Donald McIver's PhD. And immediately the introduction starts to talk about how more than a century ago, there was this German philosopher who is no longer widely read named Albert Kremens. And the introduction goes on to talk about how Albert Kremens in the Industrial Revolution really kind of foresaw the coming of the rise of fantastic literature. And, uh, and, and it even seems to kind of like reference like kind of superhero comics as well. What's hilarious is if you try to find Donald McIver's PhD online, there's no record that this person ever existed. And if you try to find Albert Kremens, this German philosopher who is no longer widely read, there is also no record that this person ever existed Safe to either. Say, unread. <laughs> unread, yes. So my personal theory, which I think is pretty likely, is that neither the German philosopher nor this Donald McIver's PhD existed. And that all of this was written by Gardner Fox. And knowing that, it makes this introduction even funnier because this introduction goes on to talk about how Gardner Fox's world, Kothar's world just leaps off the page and how it's so believable because there's a map. And what's also funny is there is no map. But, <laughs> That's um, the best part. <laughs> <laughs> and it talks about how believable it is because there's a map and this like rich history and how like it's just kind of coming alive and leaping off of the page. Um, what is that? What is that great thing? The, the, the painful awareness that man, for all his material progress, remains bound to all that is barbaric in his past. Uh, anyways, I just got a big kick out of this. And I think Gardner F. Fox's uh, willingness to work under pen names and adopt different identities, I think it's clear that he kind of wrote this. And to me, it kind of feels like he's also kind of making fun of the very, very serious kind of um, academic introductions to like the Conan paper bo- paperbacks and to similar collections of sure. the sort. Sure. I think he's definitely having fun doing this. Um, from by all accounts, he was a very uh, learned man, but he uh, doesn't seem to wear it heavily, unlike, say, uh, L. Sprague de Camp or Fletcher Pratt did in, in their fiction. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, uh, yeah, having a bit of fun. I think you could probably tell that he probably... You know, I mean, this 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 book is well written, but it feels like he probably knocked it out in two weeks, and if, you know, possibly possibly less. You know, uh, Biocalls apparently he says he claims to have written more than fifty million words during this course of his career, wow. which is prodigious. Um, if there's a Rob Denegian, it's Rob Denegian. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and what I find especially funny is that in the introduction as well, there's no reference to Conan. No, not whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> this this uh, this Donald McIver's PhD is telling us about you know this like in, incredibly like lurid and believable world that uh, Gardner F. Fox has crafted in Kothar. Uh, but, like, this is Kothar of Cumbria. Right. And right. <laughs> clearly it's Conan of Sumeria. Uh, and it's just kind of his, his, his take on that and his kind of fun, playful parody of slash homage to slash total ripoff of, depending on how you want to look at it. Right, right. He he absolutely must have read the uh, Lancer Conan paperbacks or been aware of them at the very least. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> or at least skimmed through one of them before deciding like, oh, I can write one of those. Right, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what what's actually in this story, Hoy? Okay, so the first story is The Sword of the Sorcerer, and Kothar at that point is the guardsman for a queen. I can't remember her name here. It's uh, Elfa? No. Yes, uh, it's the Lady Elfa. The Lady Elfa. And then uh, she's at war with this uh, 
evil warlord Markov. Yeah, Lord and, Markov. And Markov has a sorcerer witch on his side, and mm-hmm. so his side is lost, and so he uh, escapes into the woods. This is the one where he escapes into the woods, right? Yes. And he's being tracked down by the guardsmen of the woods, and he finds this lost tomb behind this waterfall, and he sort of works his way in there, wherein he discovers Great Eldrak, right? Is that right? No, uh, uh, his name is Afgorkhan. Afgorkhan. Who's Eldrak? Eldrak is someone else. Um, Afgorkhan, who is straight up called the Lich, and mm-hmm. is... And da 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 This is, is our introduction of the Dungeons & Dragons Lich. The classic D&D Lich. It's great. Um, so there he goes. He's in there, and um, this is kind of kind of crazy. The Lich is not straight up evil. He's just kind of this guy who wants to like encompass all knowledge. So he basically he's just left his body as a place where he can park, you know, his mentality from time to time while mm-hmm. he's exploring the cosmos. Yeah. And, so what did you? What, what was your experience reading these three stories? Did how, how did you enjoy it? Um, initially, you know, I was thinking, oh, it's just totally derivative, you know, blah blah blah. Uh, but then after a while, sort of the humor sort of crept through for me, and then the sense it was almost like um, Kothar almost started to, to me to sort of resemble a, a sort of uh, Looney Tunes or Merry Melodies version of a barbarian swordsman. And, and I don't say that in any sort of uh, derogatory sense. It was just that what would make a cool scene? Oh, great. Here, here let's do this. It's not so much about like trying to create a sort of um, plausible alternate world. You know, each scene in itself feels extremely real, but then the transitions from scene to scene is just like, okay, let's just do the next interesting thing. Let's jump to the next interesting thing. The characters are all a lot of fun. Uh, again, they're pretty much archetypal, but they're, they're a lot of fun. Red Laurie the Witch, she's terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, I, again, initially I was not not expecting to like this. I was thinking, oh, yeah, you know, more, you know, this is what you read when you ran out of, you know, Conan stories to read. Um, but it really grew on me as I started going through the series. So, yeah, what was your take? I really enjoyed it from the very first page, and I guess it would have to get the award from me for the most unexpected delight, because knowing this was just a total Conan ripoff to begin with, I had very low expectations. And I do also recognize that the expectations I bring in with me into a piece of fiction or into a film or into a a new album being released by an artist I love, I I know that that plays a big role in what kind of um, experience I have. If I'm walking in with really high expectations, it's easy for something to disappoint me. Mm-hmm. And if I'm walking in with very, very low expectations, it's really easy for some... Or Actually, that's not true. It's not easy for something to... Uh, it still has to be damn good. So when I walk in with really low expectations, but I, I'm still more likely to be very, very excited by it when it actually is good. And Kothar Barbarian Swordsman, it's just a really, really fun read. You know, it's it's coherent, it's fun, it's funny, it's inventive. There's great world building. There's uh, there's really fun characters in it. Uh, I just I don't know. I, I had so much fun reading this, and I'm really excited to continue on with the Kothar series, and then later check out his Kyrick series, which I know is his ripoff of Elric. Right, right. Um, and I I agree. That I think the the key word we want to hit on is to a certain extent is humor. I mean, it's not it's not you know, jokes for jokes' sakes in the sense that some, sometimes, you know, Elsberg de Camp and some of the other writers are, are doing. It's, um, you know, the humor is sort of inherent to Kothar himself. Uh, I like the fact that he's always hungry, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and he's always running out of money. I think the, um, uh, on top, you, you, make a, you bring up a good point. I mean, we're going to be doing this project, which is going to be hundreds of books if we get all the way through it. 
And how do we sort of maintain an open mind and not be sort of uh, cynical or, or have too many preconceptions as we come mm-hmm. to each work yeah. and just accept it on its own terms? And it's a difficult one because it's partly a historical project. So we are sort of doing a little bit of research before we start to reach each book. But then how do you sort of take out other people's filters so that we can approach each book on its own terms? Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when we're doing this. Uh, and, of course, there are always going to be books that you like more or less. Um, but again, I, as you say, I was not expecting to like this one this much. Yeah. Um, you know, especially, it really grew on me, especially by the last story. And it's like, if I put this book alongside the uh, Fletcher Pratt's The Blue Star, for example, the Fletcher Pratt's The Blue Star is had clearly a lot more thought went into it, a lot more love and craft and care. And it is probably a much better written book than Kothar Barbarian Swordsman. However, I just had a lot more fun reading Kothar Barbarian Swordsman. So I'm not claiming that this book is is better i just know that i had more fun with it sure and i think um from the standpoint i guess it depends on what you're trying to get out of your reading and or and or your gaming but um i find this one both more readable and more gameable when it comes down to it both all of the above yeah. and you know this is something that I, I i harp on a lot like if you're the kind of person who is ever uh ever goes and sees movies with me you know i i i I, I'm 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 the worst because whenever I walk out of the movie theater, I instantly, with rare exception, just start kind of like picking parts of it apart. And a yeah, this big, is the guy who hated the Hobbit. He claims he did. I did not hate the Hobbit. <laughs> I love the Hobbit. I'm going to start spreading that slander on no, all social media platforms. Jeff I, hates the Hobbit. I do not hate the Hobbit. <laughs> I love the Hobbit. I just had some nits to pick with it. <laughs> there you go. And one of my one of my big pet peeves is when a film or a book. Um, doesn't really seem to respect the intelligence level of their their, um, their audience. of their audience, and instead is kind of like overly explaining everything. And one of my favorite things about Kothar is that at the very end of the first story, he has uh, he has defeated Red Lori, the the evil witch, and it's actually a really fun battle between him and Red Lori. It's like multiple pages where he's like, well, we can we can get into more of that later. Sure. But what's really fun is by the end when he's delivered Red Lori and Mor- Lord Morkoth to the Lady Elpha, they're both in cages and Red Lori curses Kothar and says that like basically no matter where you go, I will always be there messing with you is basically her curse. Mm-hmm. But what's fun is for the rest of the book, Red Lori does keep coming up and 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 keep keeps cursing or keeps like messing with him. But what I loved is it's done in such a way that you never really know if she's really doing it or not. Right. You know, like something bad happens and then he looks into a fire and he thinks he sees her face. Right. Or he has a dream um, right before he goes in, goes out into battle and like she's like taunting him or something. Um, so it's, it's unclear, like, is she actually doing this or is he just so paranoid about it that he now feels like she's doing it? And I, I don't, I just, I, I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. I love when an author lets us draw our own conclusions there. Yeah, no, I think that's a lot of fun. I think, um, it, again, it's useful from the point of view of the fiction, uh, itself, because, you know, Kothar is otherwise described sort of, you know, again, one of those yet from a long line of sort of borderline superhuman barbarian warriors. But to have him have this particular vulnerability, it's not so much that he's against magic as such, but that it just doesn't seem to, you know, work out for him when it's around there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it's a, a useful way, uh, if we were to bring this into, you know, gaming, to have a curse, have something sort of like a, a recurring through line in your games 
you know, on your multiple sessions without it being, you know, just something that's just going to hose the players, you know, at GM's will, so to speak. You mm-hmm. know, so you can just just always give them some little level of inconvenience, but that also sort of drives the story forward. It's not just a s- stopping the story. And also the supernatural doesn't need to always be super flashy. Right. You know, because we have a couple of curses in this story. You know, there's the, there's the other where, like, finally when he um, he's, he's given Frostfire and the catch with this magical sword that's given to him by Afgor Khan, the, the lich, is that he can't possess any great treasures while he has this sword. So he's giving up all of his, like, earthly earthly opportunities for great wealth so that he can have this like really badass sword. Right. Um, and there is a scene in the third story, the third and final story where he ends up coming into possession of a great Ruby. And like, that's kind of his prize at the end. So he takes the great Ruby and as soon as he does, he gets really drowsy and falls asleep. And then the Ruby is stolen by somebody else. But as soon as that happens, though, the people who stole it start laughing to themselves about how foolish um, Kothar was for drinking the wine that they had drugged. So did he fall asleep because of the curse? Did the curse set it up so that he was dr- his wine was drugged or is it just a coincidence? And I, I, I think that that's both fun, a fun thing for an author to do and a fun thing for a reader to read, but also a fun thing to put into your game. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when, you, when you want to curse some, something or, or you want to insert any kind of supernatural element, if you can do it in a way where the, where the players and the characters aren't even really sure if it's related to that thing or not, um, it's kind of a fun way of messing with people. Right. Give them a little paranoia. It's also a way to, as we say, keep the story moving. And again, we've talked about this also, the sort of the call to adventure. Mm-hmm. Not that Kothar was going to set settle down anytime soon anyway and just become a farmer, but it's a way for him to always respond and rise to adventure, um, which seems to be, I guess, what our dividing line so far is between what we consider good appendix and fiction and sort of, you know, good books, but not necessarily great appendix and it's the ones that sort of have a call to adventure seem to be the ones that, that resonate with us. Mm-hmm. And the ones that don't, such as the Blue Star, um, are, are good for what they are, but they're like Ultimately, we say, well, where does that, where does this leave us, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, Kothar is always game. So that's that's uh, you know, it's good. He's not he's not necessarily bloodthirsty. He's not looking to build mighty empire, but he's just always game to get out there and you know see the world and you know do different things. Yeah, he does kind of seem to be an adventurer's for an adventurer who is adventuring for adventure's sake, right? Uh, because I mean, with his sword, he can't really have great treasures. And uh, one of his adventures he goes on, um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's the third story. Uh, he goes on, basically the whole reason he does this is because he really wants to have sex with this woman. <laughs> and she's like, well, if you, do this, if you do this thing for me, then you can have me. Right. Uh, so one of them he just does so that he can get laid. Uh, <laughs> and the second story, you know, he goes into this labyrinth uh, because there's a great treasure at the center. Uh, and it's like, okay, well, that's cool that there's a great treasure in the center, but like you can't have great treasures. Uh, so it's, I, I kind of feel like he's, he, he, he reminds me of kind of PCs when like the DM is just kind of like, okay, well, this guy walks in and offers you an adventure and you're like, okay, cool. Let's go. Right. Right. <laughs> you don't need to think about it too hard. Like right. you're adventurers. That's what you do. You just adventure. Right. This is the one where uh, the second story was the, uh, treasure in the labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Right. And there always seems to be some sort of, um, witchy woman in the three stories because there's Red Lori in the original story. And then there's the woman he encounters in the labyrinth in the second story. And then the third story is also another witchy woman. That's uh, the Lady Elaine, right? Oh, uh-huh. no, it's the... 
Yeah. Elaine. Yeah, yeah Elaine. So um, it's a lot of fun there, I think. And 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 the I would say that the we won't necessarily say that Red Lori and Elaine are particularly um, complex characters, but they're well drawn. Yeah, you know they they each have their own personalities, mm-hmm. and, and you can totally see why. You know, Red Lori is manipulative. She's vengeful, but she's not evil as such. It seems to me, in my mind, you know, mm-hmm. she's not just like a cackling villain. Right? Mm-hmm. She's just she has legitimate reasons to be PO'd at Kothar. You know, after her fall from grace. Although I, may, I might argue with that with just a little bit though, yeah. because she's also responsible for um, I forget the name of the character, but um, oh, uh, uh, Kazazael. Yeah. So Lady Elpha's uh, wizard is Kazazael, and. Uh, Red Lori has had him flayed, right. and he's like dangling like uh, like a hundred feet in the air. Yeah, I consider that just professional rivalry, <laughs> <laughs> just kind of in constant torment because like the the wind blowing through his like flayed body. Right. Um, that that seems a little evil to me. You know, uh, you know, I don't know what the bylaws of uh, you know wizardry, <laughs> wizardry rivalry are, but I mean, he, he ultimately gets back at her, so it's you know, he puts her in a cage, right, and then she's permanently suspended. No, this is uh, essentially a series of like really fun set pieces. Is, yeah. is how I would describe this book, and it's quite quite short too. It's one hundred and fifty three some odd pages. And by the way, I do want to add that uh, this is still available as ebook um, and in print. So Wildside Press has it available as trade paperback with the first two or three sto- uh, books, and then the Gardner Fox Estate just authorized another series of ebooks. You can buy them as individual volumes, and um, with the wackadoo uh, introduction. So you might want to go that route if you're really interested in reading this book and you can't find a good paperback copy. Um, so yeah, what else, Jeff? What else really springs to mind from this from this book that, as we've seen so far? There's really a lot, you know. Um, and this, this is a very small detail, but it's one that I, again, just got a really big kick out of. And it just goes to tell that, like, you know, even if he's not writing brilliant fiction here, Gardner Fox is like a great storyteller and knows how to kind of invent and put in really fun things. And one of those is in the second story, uh, there is this, like, great labyrinth. And adventurers go into this labyrinth to, like, seek the treasure at the center of the labyrinth. But people never make it out of this thing. And uh, it says that anybody who goes in will, will perish within there. One of my favorite things about it is to get into the labyrinth, you just walk up to, like, a wooden door and swing it open. And I feel like one of the kind of common tropes in fantasy novels and in gaming is that you have this like big kind of rune covered door that like that's a, it's a big trap and there's all this mystery around it and you have to figure out how to get through the door. I love how like there's this moment where like Kothar is like wrestling with the idea of walking through the door and people talk about how scary it is to walk through the door because it is so easy to go through it. It's really simple to walk through that door. But once you've walked through that door, you have committed yourself to this labyrinth. There is no turning back. Right. Uh, no, I think that's terrific. Again, we're talking about for both fiction and, and gaming is to not create any barrier to the adventure, mm-hmm. but not let it be easy for anyone to back out of the adventure. Once you're in there, you're in it. You know? And it's really fun when you can ins- insert any amount of like, are you sure? Right. Are you sure you want to walk through that door that's so easy to open? (laughs) (laughs) They say that once you go through, you're not able to come back. So please, I I encourage you to walk through it if that's what you want to do. There you go. That's the uh, old adversarial uh, GM. uh, (laughs) Let people hang themselves by their own, uh, you know, with their own rope, so to speak. um, Yeah, it's... um, 
And he, he meets what Miramel, and then he creates these He has this basically a fake Minotaur. It's called the Minocar. <laughs> the Minocar, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kothar and the Minocar. And the Minocar. <laughs> um, it's also some other fun curses, like when he gets the painted with that sort of little black tattoo. Is that the second or third story? That's the third story. That's the third story. Right. Mm-hmm. Again, I wouldn't necessarily call it um, realistic world building in the way that Robert E. Howard or Tolkien or some of the no. other writers have created. Um, but it's always just, okay, what would make this scene more interesting? What would move this story along? What would do, you know, what would be the next thing that would set up the next cool thing? And again, I think both from a storytelling point of view, that's a lot that's terrific. And again, if we're, you know, just trying to run adventure, especially again, as we've always talked about, we tend to run them in sort of so- shorter open table slots. Mm-hmm. You know, what can we do to just keep people moving so they're not thinking too much about, uh, you know, debating back and forth about what to do next? Yeah. Another thing that I really like stylistically and aesthetically about the way Gardner F. Fox um, kind of laid out the setting for Kothar Barbarian Swordsman is that, you know, we've got we've got two moons. We have this 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 moment where he's kind of going down this metal hallway and the, the ceiling lights up. And in the kind of first page of this of um, it's kind of between the introduction and the first story. Um, is that right? Am I getting yeah, that right? Yeah, yep. it's, uh, yeah there's like this, yeah, this, the universe is old thing. And it talks about how like the race of man left the, uh, left the stars and all the planets, but they had once like dominated the world, whatever. Right. So what I, what I like, what I liked is that those elements are definitely there in the story, but they're delivered with such a light touch. Mm-hmm. You know, they aren't, it's, we're not kind of, it's, we're not beat over the head with it. There's nothing kind of like, it, there's no kind of hokey kind of harping on the ancient technologies, nor is there just like a long list of like, like, like big sections of info dump kind of letting us know about all these great kingdoms that have now right. vanished. It's not or, the Hyborian Age essay from the Robert D. Howard books. Absolutely. It's like, here's just enough like additional flavor text to show you that uh, this world is slightly different than ours. And uh, let's kind of keep moving. Right. Right. And you can, and uh, you can fill in the blanks, so to speak. And that's one thing we've also get talked about that, um, a lot of these sort of uh, game world settings, especially since sort of maybe the third edition era onwards, are just so densely detailed that in a sense they don't really leave a, any kind of white space for the imagination mm-hmm. or space for adventure. You're kind of you're kind of playing someone else's sandbox. Yeah. And I think that um, if we took this model, it would be sort of more effective a lot of times for people to feel like you know they're not sort of. Oh, we're we're violating the continuity of this world. And, sure. You know, blah blah blah. So and if my previous my previous guess that the next licensed product from Goodman Games isn't indeed Elric and it is instead the Conan, right. uh, I'm sorry, the Kothar box set. Right. Uh, the person who's writing that is going to have a lot of flexibility right. and freedom. <laughs> They'll be able to do that in two weeks. <laughs> Knock it out. Uh, I would be totally down for a Kothar box set. <laughs> but you know, I still am holding out for a Blue Star, you know, compendium. <laughs> so. Very clearly, the Lich came directly from here, mm-hmm. and we don't even it's it, and we don't even need to just like say like oh the, it says Lich and he's an undead sorcerer. Gary says Gary Gygax has said that it came from Kothar Barbarian Swords, mm-hmm. so it's not even like we're guessing at this. Right. It's it's that that is basically fact at this point. Right. Um, however, there's a lot of, of 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 kind of fantasy stuff in here. What else do you think may have been taken from here? Do you have any kind of immediate things that leap off the page that you th- can think of? Uh, well, I mean, we have uh, wizard duels. I mean, that's more of DCC than, mm. than D&D. That's between uh, Red Lorry and um, the other, uh, Kazazel. Mm-hmm. We have, uh, you know, cursed items, essentially. And we have, um, you know, so the uh, frost, frost fire, we could definitely say. 
you know, we could certainly stat that out as having, you know, all these bonuses. But the downside is, again, you can't have the ruby, you know, or whatever. Um, we have him literally going into dark spaces underground in each instance of these stories, right? That's true. You know, we have uh, various monsters, you know, the uh, Minicar and... Um, trying to think of what other ones there's giant spiders, giant spiders and there's yep. skeletons yep. and uh, sylphs and right uh you know again the, the difference between you know most sword and sorcery or heroic fiction and you know rpgs is that this is a single protagonist i mean they're supporting characters as opposed to a party as such mm-hmm. what else we have this sort of alternate dimension thing it's in the third story when he's kind of battling with the wizard right he, yeah. he's kind of crossing through these various dimensions as mm-hmm. he's trying to get to uh Gorfroy, the uh the evil baron yeah um so that's that's really cool. Can I think what else is in there? Well, jumps. some things that I've I picked up um, is the hold person spell. Mm-hmm. You know, there's in, in the very first scene where he meets the lich, um, he is instantly held, and so are all of the other soldiers who are following him. Uh, so so definitely that that seemed to have been potentially taken from there. Um, although maybe just the idea of like hypnotizing somebody and holding them in place is something that is uh, kind of maybe a standard trope. It seemed very kind of specific. Very, it seemed like specifically he was casting a whole person in that moment. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, away from D&D and more towards kind of DCC stuff, though, I really thought uh, the use of patrons in this was really fun. Mm-hmm. You know, because very clearly, uh, Kothar's patron is uh, Afgor Khan, and he's mm-hmm. got this sword. But what, what was also funny to me is that at one point... Kothar, who apparently has another patron, uh, Dwalka, and he's like, Dwalka, if you help me out, I will leave you a gold coin in your in your church. Right. And I was just thinking, like, wow, Dwalka is like a pretty cheap patron <laughs> because, like, Elric, when he's like reaching out to right, blood and souls for Ariok. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, Ariok. I offer you, you know, a, a, a battlefield of souls. Yeah. Uh, where Kothar's like, I promise you a gold piece. And the next time I walk, happen to walk past one of your temples. Well, you know, it's each to their means. Uh, you know, Elric is an em- emperor of a mighty empire, so you know he's in proportion. <laughs> you know, we won't get into the uh, the uh, ins and outs of progressive taxation. On this podcast. <laughs> um, I do like the characterization of all the villains and, and the ability for us to think about this in terms of how we would create recurring villains or NPCs. You know, mm-hmm. Agfor Khan is a lich and, you know, it's undead, but he's not a cackling maniac, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, so therefore, he, you know, he's a patron and, uh, you know, Red Lori, we've talked about whether or not she's, you know, truly evil. I guess she is, but she's not unmotivated, right? I think the closest thing would be maybe Gorfroy in terms of him just being a power-hungry, you know, SOB. But there's Miramel, who is the woman who's found in the uh, labyrinth, and she kind of wants to keep him there, right, and among other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting characters that, again, if if you're playing at a table where people aren't going to instantly just kill NPCs just to out of uh, an abundance of caution, then I think that um, we could take a lot of characterization and motivation from our various NPCs from this book. Sure. I would agree with that. A thing that I really like about Kothar, and it's not necessarily something that I could take into my my games necessarily, but it's something I could take into my RPG design if I was creating a new fantasy role-playing game kind of from scratch. But I really liked how uh, the in spell casting, or at least when you're doing like major serious spell casting, the, the wizards are completely helpless while they're doing this. They're kind of like sitting down. They're kind of going into this massive trance. And while they're doing that, they can, they can have like really powerful results. 
But in doing so, they're completely helpless and completely unaware of their surroundings. And uh, that aspect I thought was really fun and well done. In fact, the whole kind of final battle in the first story with Red Lori was a blast. Mm -hmm. You know, because right away, Kothar is approaching her lair. He's in the tower. He's approaching her lair. And, uh, and suddenly, like, the Lady Elpha appears. And he's like, you're not the Lady Elpha. And it turns out that it's actually, uh, it's actually uh, Sloth Anne, Red Lori's uh, familiar. And it's this big black leopard. And he ends up, like, chopping off its paw. And then as soon as he chops off the big black leopard's paw, uh, the, the familiar kind of turns into this, like, little black cat and kind of, like, limps away. And he's, but he's now got that paw and he approaches this big door that's like cursed and anybody who touches it is just like obliterated for, for like they, 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 they just like disintegrated, no longer exist. And like even their soul is demolished. Uh, but because he's got the paw, he's able to walk right through because, you know, Sloth Ann can go right. through and apparently it's yeah, he, fingerprint. He raised the paw, hurled it, and then he leaped. Exactly. As, as the fur touched the bronze door, the metal seemed to melt. Yeah. And, and in that next room, the, the kind of showdown was so cinematic. Like, yeah. you know, the, the winds are blowing and like he can see into other dimensions, like these like hell dimensions while she's like like doing her magic. Uh, yeah, it was really effective and really fun. Right. That's something I've tried to do. I mean, we're not always successful because we're dealing with both the mechanics of the game that we're doing mm -hmm. and our um, sort of responsibilities as GM to be sort of um, create a, a mind's eye yeah. image for our players. So to find that nice balance between uh, describing just enough so that the players um, can just go, uh, you know, leap past the mechanics and be in the scene without it being sort of a sort of uh, self-indulgent exercise of us just telling a story to our players, so yeah. to speak. Um, and I think that, again, this one, this book is quite effective because um, he makes every scene very vivid, but without unnecessary prose to sort of, uh, you know, complete, you know, completely fill in every single detail. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that... Um, both from the standpoint, again, I keep on saying this one is in many ways the closest sort of match between fiction and gameplay that I've seen out of the books we've read so far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would agree with that completely. And, um, and yeah, building on that, it's just a great reminder that when your villain casts Charm Person, you don't say she casts Charm Person. Right. You know, like build the scene. Right. You start feeling, you know, you start feeling drowsy. You know, something's going on. Or at the end, uh, Elaine turns Kothar into a dog, right? Mm -hmm. in, the oh, yeah. in the last story. <laughs> just, That's his dog. Kothar sat back on his haunches and looked at her. <laughs> well, and also just to back up on that yeah. for a second, too, because because uh, that was the one that I had mentioned he was motivated by sex. Yeah. Uh, what what she had actually said was something like, um, if you, if you... What is it? If you do this quest for me, I will let you love me or something like that. So when he does come back from the quest, uh, she turns him into a dog uh, because, the, the, uh, she, she, of course, she'll let the, the dog love her. Right. And uh, but yeah, but he ends up like turning around on her because the whole purpose of the quest was he's supposed to bring back a single strand of her of her like white hair or Which something. Which was being used by Gorfroy to keep her in prison, right? And, exactly. And uh, but her... instead, he has a sense that he's going to be uh, that he's going to be cross betrayed. Yes, yeah. he's going to be betrayed. So instead of bringing back one of her hairs, he brings back one of his horse's hairs. <laughs> <laughs> so when she crosses the threshold, she's destroyed. Yeah. He's, you know, he's, he's often manipulated, but he's no dummy. So. And again, barbarians are not dumb. Yeah. 
you know, or I mean, I should say, I rephrase that. The barbarians of um, who inspired the barbarian class from literature are not usually dumb. Right. You know, our our Conans, our Kothars, our Faffords, you know, they're smart dudes. Right. They're very wily in their own ways. Yes. And uh, often beyond that. We almost tend to think of, it's become a trope, but we're really, really thinking more of like Gru the Barbarian from, you know, the, the comics when mm-hmm. we have the, you know, the super stupid barbarian who just hacks everything in his way. Yeah. Um, but as soon as she crosses the threshold and she's destroyed, yeah. the spell ends and he comes back to his former self. And I also think that's a fun thing that you can insert into your games or your game writing is the idea that somehow someone, maybe one of you, one of the characters, maybe the whole party is under the effects of a spell mm-hmm. and the spell will not end until the spellcaster is destroyed. Mm-hmm. I think um, there's a whole section I haven't really delved into it since I haven't game mastered that much for uh, or judged that much for TCC, but th- th- they're pretty explicit about curses in there, right? There's a whole appendix about the creating effective curses in that Curse, game. Yeah. And I think, I think that's... Um, I can't yeah. claim to be as familiar with that section as I am with the rest of the book, but sure. yeah, it's there. Sure. Um, I mean, players hate that, of course. They hate like not having 100% free agency, but I think the part of the contract in an RPG, and maybe it's changed with people's expectations now, is that you sort of give yourself over to the game, to the to the situation. And I know that there's now a lot of talk about RPGs as sort of co-creation, mm-hmm. and, and you know the players can affect the narrative in sort of meta levels. And I'm not as much into that. I'm not saying that that's wrong fun, but that's not my fun. Yeah. I'd rather create the setting and have the players affect the setting by their actions within that setting, but not that not allow them to say that this, no, the setting is this, right? Mm-hmm. Say, so, no, this is the setting. But, you know, you look around and you can make use of that setting and that situation given everything I've given you, mm-hmm. right? But I'm not, I'm not saying, I'd rather not say, oh, well, I've got a, a narrative point here. So I say that instead of the sky being blue, it's actually red. And therefore, you know, um, you know, the, I have my, I have powers because it's a red sun. Again, it's, it's styles of play and I guess, you know, different systems. Um, but I just think that cre- laying the table is sort of the, the game master's job, right? And then it's up to the players, you know, what they want to do with what's on the table. Do they eat? Do they throw the mashed potatoes at each other? What is it that they're doing? And then from there, it's also back on the game master. It's their responsibility and um, and their... Oh, I'll leave it at that. It's their responsibility to also allow the players to do that and to let them change and mess up your world. Right, right. And, you know, if it's if it's a robust enough game world, then it will still be there. If you have a situation where... Uh, uh, and I guess we're getting a little bit meta into the games now. If you have a situation where literally in one session your game, your players can sort of dis- destroy your world and make you, you know, stalk off in a rage, then I think that's more your problem as a game master than the player's problem as, as players because you basically created something that's not robust enough to withstand uh, player ingenuity or, or um, you know, vandalism, so to speak. Maybe. I would, I would uh, build on that, though, and say that... Um that I think even a really talented and experienced game master can create an adventure that can be broken by players. I think which, where, where experience and uh, savviness really comes out is when, the, when, you, when, when you see how the game master responds to that. Right. So if I've come into a situation where like maybe everybody can break what I've prepared very easily, 
what do I do in response to that? Do I say, oh, well, guys, like, that's what I wrote. So what are we going to do now? Or do I roll with it as though I had all of these other things prepared anyways and just kind of keep going? Right, right. I think the, the point is to not really show what's going behind the, on behind the curtain. You don't want to be arbitrary. You don't want to do as what you just said. You don't want to complain or, or sulk. And then conversely, you don't want to be that guy who you know, uh, they create what's called the, I guess, the quantum ogre. Say, so, well, okay, well, there's this ogre here anyway, or, you know, uh, you know, this dragon suddenly swoops in out of nowhere. It's just uh, you're not trying to punish the party. It mm-hmm. has to be feasible and logical, but you might just sort of adjust in your mind, say, well, as you we played in that session last week, you know, we, there was, I guess, two of these frog, uh, opossum men or whatever, and you said, oh, you know, the party was bigger or more powerful than you expected. So you said, no, actually, there's eight of them or however many there is. Mm-hmm. And you just sort of scaled. You had a little, you know, dial in your head that you could use to scale up or scale down. Well, I did, although of... usually I do that in my head, and that was right. one of the rare moments where I, I accidentally let it out. Right. <laughs> but in... I said there's two, and I'm like, oh, wait, no, actually, there's four. Right. There's Which is fine. I mean, I don't think anyone's upset about it. But the, but the point is just to have... Uh, a dial where you can dial up and down and to respond to it. With, and that way, uh, neither uh, side of the table is feeling, you know, cheated or upset mm-hmm. by what's going on. I think that's, that's um, you know, pretty important. So uh, I guess what I'm saying is not so much that, you know, the players won't disrupt the best laid plans of the GM or judge. That's always going to happen. Yes. But have something that's useful in your back pocket that is plausible within the context of the game world, right? And, you know, Again, every game world is different. So some of them might be, as we say, completely Looney Tunes. So anything could happen. And some of them will be, for lack of a better word, um, uh, Gygaxian naturalism. So they will have their own internal rules. So you know what? Okay, your party ran roughshod over there because you only had kobolds on there. Um, then that's it. You know, and there's kobolds and they, they got an easy win that time. Mm-hmm. Right? And then next time it won't be that easy. Right? Yeah. But, you know, I, I generally like to think in games that you want it to be just at the sort of that fine balancing point where it could go either way because I think usually generally the players, unless you're playing with people who are just pure power gamers, will generally feel more rewarded if they just got by the, by the skin of their teeth. Mm-hmm. You know, it's my experience. Um, so I, um, I want to honor the fact that Gardner F. Fox came from the world of comics and also um, honor kind of the great eight-year-old tradition um, as in the tradition of eight-year-olds, mm-hmm. to, um, you, you know how it's like, oh, who would win in a fight? Uh, Blue Beetle or uh, Green Lantern? So, uh, Hoy, who would win in a fight, Conan or Kothar? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, hmm, I think Kothar is luckier, and luck does count for a lot, but Conan is pretty darn smart. Yeah, I so, think Conan uh, would, I, yeah. I think Kothar would be sliced in twain. Right, right. I mean, I, I, maybe we should have like a, uh, you know, a... Uh, barbarian rankings at some point once we've read enough of these and, and we'll see where he fits in. I think he's uh, definitely not Conan level, but he might be, uh, you know, second tier, triple A, triple A barbarian. Although the argument could be made that although Co- Conan could clearly uh, take Kothar any day of the week under normal circumstances, Kothar also has a magic sword right. that is imbued with powers uh, that allow him to do kind of great and crazy things. Right. So if Kothar did kind of summon Frostfire's energies in just the right way, he actually might be able to get the advantage over Conan. Right. Uh, in I, just the right situation. In any given day, right. Uh, straight up, 
yeah, straight up Conan, no question. Uh, <laughs> Kothar, if he's on, if he's having a good day, he's got his magic sword, and he frequently has some sort of, as you say, magical ally or patron, which Conan really does for any yeah. period of time. So, um, I think Co- Kothar and Fafford might be pretty evenly matched. That might be though. a good match because Fafford is always going to screw up things. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we haven't gotten to. Uh, I don't know how Kothar and well, Elric is way way smarter than Kothar, and Elric has a destiny. It's not clear that Kothar has a destiny. <laughs> this is only the first book that we've read. That's so, true. But, I mean, having said that, so there's four more Kothar books, and I think I'm in. I think I'm in for the ride. Oh, I totally am. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to check some of these out. Yeah. It's, it's fun having these little weirdo random discoveries. And I, I feel like this is a kind of book that could not be written uh, this day because it's, it's almost too small. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's almost like it's so enjoyable, but it's it's not like, you know, everything these days seems to be high fantasy, and even the sword and sorcery has to be, you know... Blood and guts and grim and thirty thousand people dying on the battlefield and this is you know just him and you know and a witch lady here and a monster there. It, it seems um, almost innocent in a weird way. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I could see maybe Kothar being like a TV show, <laughs> but yeah, I don't really see Kothar being published the way it is. Right. Yeah, Kothar would be like a, a CW show or a, you know maybe sci-fi, <laughs> but you know I I don't see. Yeah, I, I would not see, like, a, a new series of Kothar novels coming out. And it, you know, and there's a very, uh, you know, I mean, we've talked about Gardner Fox. He's a very learned man. Uh, he's very conscious of his craft, but he's not uh, self-conscious of his craft. And I find a lot of fiction these days is a little bit self-conscious. Yeah. And that, that's not a flavor that comes through in, in Gardner Fox's work, at least as far as I've read so far. A part of that might just be, like, the confidence that he has from being uh, such a prolific comic book writer but like he really does just have like this really kind of like great ease with writing this stuff and and even though like it does kind of feel like is or you can walk away being like is he making fun of the conan stories is he homaging to them? Is he ripping them off? It doesn't matter because he's just churning the stuff out. Well, the answer is yes. <laughs> all, to all of the above. It's all of the above and it's done in just like such a like a playful way that it doesn't feel like you're being demeaned. It doesn't feel like you're being uh swindled you know like this this isn't this isn't somebody who like maybe he is just trying to make a buck i don't know but it doesn't feel like you're being delivered a piece of garbage right yeah this definitely i feel like there's commercial motives for the book but the fiction itself is not cynical yeah right is is probably how i would say it yeah so Uh, very pleasantly surprised yeah and one thing i would like to add before we wrap up is also afgor khan the lich who was the most powerful wizard of all time, great uh, in the past, was also a mighty warrior. So here we have... Oh, so there's another thing I want to bring up, too. Um, so he was also a mighty warrior. So yes, you can be a wizard and a warrior in Appendix N. The other thing I want to mention is that the Lich at one point cures Kothar of all of his wounds. Mm-hmm. And later, another wizard throws some, uh, some magic powder onto Kothar, and he's healed as well. So I would also like to say that wizards... And healing magic can also exi- also exist in the appendix end because mm-hmm. I personally my one probably probably my absolute least favorite thing about fantasy role playing games is the division between divine and arcane magic. It makes no sense to me. I don't understand it. I don't understand why the most powerful wizard in the world can't can't cure up my 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 knife slash. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, well, I think you're in the same camp as uh, James Raggi, then he's been talking about getting rid of the cleric class in uh, Lamentations. Please, uh, yeah. ditch it. There's, I, 
I mean, in, when I when I run my games, uh, when I run my DCC games, I'm running them for the public, so I like to run them rules as written. Right. But in my own games, I would like to really maybe possibly run something just completely clericless right. and have and give wizards healing magic. Why not? Right. I think there is a mechanic for that in DCC where they basically sort of alter the difficulties and let you you know just move the spells over to another. Class, I think, like that. I wouldn't even alter the difficulties, yeah. though. I mean, right. why not? Why, right. why can't you have a first-level healing spell as a wizard? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, and, and DCC seems to be very hackable, and a lot of the other games are pretty hackable. So of course. Yes. Um, you know, and the cleric is, I mean, there's a long debate about that, about whether the cleric belongs in D&D at all, because I guess the original classes were just a wizard and fighting man yeah. in, in the very first days, and there was no thief, and there was no cleric. And the cleric is the least, um, there's the least evidence for the cleric in the fiction, appendix and fiction, that we've seen so far. And the, and the evidence that we do come across of them, they're not consistent. Right. Because um, we see many priests who are purely in a social role, and then we see many priests who are much more resemble a magic user or a wizard of some sort. Yeah, there's an evil sorcerer. Yeah, evil sorcerer of some sort. So, you know, we, we don't really want to open that can of worms here. Well, maybe <laughs> we do. Um, but, I mean, that's that's been a debate that's been going on for over 40 years. I don't think we're going to solve that here. But, yeah, it would be interesting to see what else what else shows up and what, what other evidence for the various sort of character classes and archetypes. I, mean, I was hoping we could solve it today. But if, if you're cool with not solving uh, you know, it, then, uh, then okay, fine. We could arm wrestle. Whatever. You know? no, no, it's cool. It's cool. Right. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so shall we wrap up? Sure, absolutely. Uh, okay, so um, as we are heading out of here, we want you to know about our next two episodes. So uh, next week we'll be... Sterling E. Lanier's High Rose Journey, which is a terrific book. Mm-hmm. And what's the one after that, Jeff? Then it's Lynn Carter's Giant of World's End. Okay, that'll be our first Lynn Carter solo story. We have a lot of evidence of him as an editor and as a co-writer, but that'll be interesting to see him as a solo writer. Mm-hmm. As always, we can be found on iTunes and the other podcast platforms of choice. Uh, do rate us there, if you can, on any of those, and give us a short review. It really helps us uh, be discovered by new listeners. Yes, please. Yep. Uh, you can email us at appendixandbookclub at gmail.com. And what's our Twitter handle, Jeff? Uh, it is appendix underscore n. Okay. And we're also on the Meetup group. So if you look for us on Meetup, it's uh, DCCNYC. Is that correct? Yeah, it's meetup.com slash DCCNYC. Okay. And our website, appendixandbookclub.com. On there we have the show notes. We have links to our reading list and other resources. Uh, so I think you'll find that useful. Uh, And that's uh, it for now, so we'll see you in the stacks. All right, read on. The library is closed.